You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'm kind of uh, apprehensive about doing this because uh, I said this morning I would do it, and if I hadn't said it, I probably wouldn't. Uh, I want to look at one of the biggest questions that people have about Christianity that you may have, uh, and that certainly your non-Christian friends or family will have. In fact, it's, it's considered to be the strongest argument against the existence of God and of the God of the Bible. And I hear it repeated often, and sometimes some of the Christian answers to it are quite woeful, to be honest. So there's a lot in this, and I'm going to try and keep it fairly straightforward. Uh, We're going to look at the whole question of evil, and I want to, there'll be a, a, a fair bit to explain where we're going, there'll be a fair bit of introduction to explain what the actual problem is, and then we're going to look at what the Bible's answer is. And I don't expect to have every single question answered, and it's not that you can just put it in a package anyway. But uh, it is a question, of course, that the Bible is deeply, deeply concerned with. So let's begin by reading God's Word in Genesis chapter 3. Now, in February, Sinclair is going to begin a series uh, teaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I don't want uh, to preempt that at all, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what God will say to us through that. But uh, this is the first mention of evil. Genesis 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die." You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Let's just pray. Lord, as we look at your word, grant that you would help us to understand it. Lord, we live in a world where there is a great deal of evil, and we are conscious of that within ourselves as well. We pray that you would help us to understand so that we would not despair, but that we would look to you, the one who redeems and saves from evil. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay, you are going to have to stay awake and think, okay? You can't, this is not one of those sermons you can just kind of drift because we're going to, it will be fairly uh, intense and there's a fair bit of philosophy and stuff in there as well. But the first question you simply ask is, what is evil? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, what do we mean by evil? And it's not actually all that easy to answer. Some people regard it as profound immorality. Some people just say it's the opposite of good, and then you've got to ask, what is good? And there are people who will say good and evil don't exist. 
and they will say that it's just what people think, how different societies view. But all of us within ourselves know that there is such a thing as evil. Now, there are four basic views. Oops, that's not working. Can you move it on for me, Adeline, please? Uh. Okay, the four basic views about where we get our morals from and how we decide what good and evil is. Moral absolutism holds the view that good and evil are fixed concepts established by a god or by gods, by nature or morality or common sense. So there are some things that are good, there are some things that are evil. Um, you kill me or my wife, that's a, or a, it's an evil thing. There are things that are good. It's not, they're, they're, they're absolute things that are absolutely good and things that are absolutely evil. The next one is amoralism. That's the view that good and evil are just meaningless terms, that there's no moral ingredient in nature, and so why should human beings have it at all? Uh, Neil was in India, and, well, what happens if, let's say, there's a famine or a flood in India and tens of thousands of people die? Why, why is that good or why is that evil? Uh, an amoralist would hold that view. Moral relativism is the view largely of our culture, which holds that there are standards of good and evil, but they're only the product of our culture or our custom or our prejudice. And uh, there's a fourth view, moral universalism, and that is just way too hard to explain, but it's an attempt to try and put um, absolutism and relativism uh, together, and it's really a complicated form of moral relativism. Now, you may not particularly like all of these terms and so on, but the fact is that every one of us has a concept of good and evil that fits one of those. I think that it, you can say to every single human being that we have a sense of evil and a sense of good. It's very simple with a child. That's not fair. That's not fair. They have some awareness of good and some awareness of evil. And it's one of the things that makes us distinctly human. Because uh, other animals, if you like, don't have concepts of good and evil. So I'm, the first thing that the Bible says about evil is that it exists, that it's there. It's not just something that human beings make up. And that is very, very important because if you end up in a society where people say that there's really no such thing as evil, that good and evil are just what people determine at any particular point, you will end up in hell. Because you will end up in a society where people will say, yeah, it's okay to kill babies. It's okay to kill Jews. It's okay to rape women. It's okay to have slaves. Who's anyone to say that something is right or wrong? And one of the, the dangers in our culture, by the way, that the Bible addresses very strongly is the view that people have where they say, well, what's right for me is what counts. But that doesn't really work. Because what if what's right for you, you think what you want, actually ends up harming somebody else? Now, here's the problem of evil. That's, that's the, the situation that 
evil exists, morals exist, good and evil exist. But the problem with evil from a Christian perspective and the argument that people think is a killer argument is this. The God of the Bible is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is perfectly good. And evil exists. How do you put those together? Because the argument goes, if God was all-powerful and all-good, then he wouldn't want evil to exist. If he's all-powerful and evil exists, then he can't be all-good. And if he's all-good and evil exists, then he can't be all-powerful. He can't be both these things and evil exist. And there are people for whom that argument is the absolute killer argument. And there are some people who, who have grown up in a Christian church and they've never, ever heard it. And when they first hear it, it blows their mind and they go, oh, I, how can I possibly survive? So I think it is, it is very, very important that we understand what the Bible has to say about that and how the Bible deals and answers with it. Now, the first thing to say, and it's not a biblical one as such, is to say that let's say somebody says there is no God. Does that remove evil? No, evil is still there. And in fact, the problem if you are an atheist or an agnostic and you don't acknowledge God you end up with far greater problems than the Christian does. And I'll just list them for you. If there's no creator, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for morality, no ultimate meaning in life, and no human free will, you end up with a world that is a horrible world, a horrendous world. This is what Richard Dawkins says, in a universe in electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, if you are going to live as an unbeliever and you're going to be consistent, then Richard Dawkins is perfectly correct. But what a world to live in. There is no good and there is no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I once did a debate at the University of Cambridge, and the, it was a debate that we were losing because we had to prove uh, that there was a God, and proving that in a debate context is very difficult. Until the president of the Atheist Society stood up and said that um, Dachau, Dachau was a one of the Nazi concentration camps, death camps, Dachau is wrong, he said, is not a fact. And I interrupted him and said, pardon? And he says, well, I thought you'd interrupt me, David, he said. But he said, it's not a fact. Gravity is a fact. But Dachau is wrong is not a fact. He said, I think it was wrong. I feel it was wrong. But I can't prove it was wrong. It's not a fact. And if you believe there's no creation, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for morality, no ultimate meaning in life, no human free will, if you believe what Richard Dawkins says, that there is no evil and no good, then you can't say that Dachau is wrong. He was perfectly right in what he said. And then he said to me, you can't prove that Dachau was wrong. And I, and I remember thinking, standing and praying, just, Lord, help me here. 
And I said, actually, I can. And he said, why? And I said, well, it depends where you start, doesn't it? You start with the view that there is no God. And because there is no God, you end up with a universe and where there's no good or evil. So you can't say that the Holocaust was good or evil. You can only say at most that socially in your culture you, you think it's wrong. And he said, well, that's fair enough, but you start with the view that there is a God. And I said, no, no, actually, that's not where I start. This is where I start. I start with the fact that if you rape my daughter, it's wrong. It's evil. I'm not arguing about that. That's an absolute. I start with the fact that if you murder six million Jews, that's evil. I know that that's evil. And then I ask, why is it evil? Why is it evil? Why is it evil? Why is it evil? And I come back to the fact that there must be a God. There must be an absolute right and wrong, and there must be somebody who gives that. And so in actual fact, the problem of evil for me as a Christian is something that's a much bigger problem for the atheist, and for the Christian, it's actually an evidence of God. Now that's where... um, well, I put this in, I don't really want to go in, this is a very important philosopher called Nietzsche, who has a big influence on our culture, um, and he argued extremely that everything wicked, terrible, tyrannical, predatory, and serpentine in man serves as well for the elevation of the human species as its opposite. In other words, he says, evil things work for the good of humanity. Um, it was a really, he, he's had a very, very devastating effect. Uh, Nietzsche was for me an atheist prophet and you did end up with the absolute horror of the First World War and the Second World War arising largely out of his atheistic philosophy. But this is where the Christian argument comes in because C.S. Lewis, and and I don't think anyone ever put it better than this in C.S. Lewis, he argued, he was an atheist, the writer of the Narnia Tales was an atheist. And he argued this, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. That seems obvious. How can there be a God? If I was God and I would make the universe and it would be all perfect. But then he said, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying what the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Now that's a very important argument. When you look at something in the Bible and you say, that's so unfair that the Amalekites were all killed, or, or you look at something that's wrong and evil, you say, that's so evil, that's so wrong, You then have to ask, how do I get that idea of right and wrong? And Lewis said simply that the the testimony we have within us of right and wrong is a greater evidence of God even than the testimony out with of the created universe. Now, as I say, that's um, 
You, you do have to stop and think about that, but when you do think about it, that makes a lot of sense. There are difficulties in understanding why bad things happen. But these difficulties are magnified many, many times if you ignore God or you leave God out of the question. In fact, as a consistent atheist, you end up saying bad things don't happen because there's no such thing as bad, which just doesn't make sense at all. So what happens then is that the atheist will change the understanding of evil very subtly to say suffering. So they'll say, um, evil as a moral absolute doesn't exist, but evil as we understand is suffering. And that's how you'll hear this all the time about harming people. Uh, Google's motto used to be, do no evil, um, including tax avoidance, but they left that bit out. Um, But now people understand evil as being suffering. I don't want to do anything that causes anyone harm. There's a a world in which pointless, unnecessary, or what they call unabsorbed suffering. Now, is the world filled with pointless and unnecessary suffering? Now, there's a huge problem when people start thinking like that, because you can look, and I see it all the time. I go up to Nine Wells and I go into the cancer ward. What? Why? That doesn't make any It doesn't seem any sense. Central African Republic right now, people killing each other. Why? That just doesn't make any sense. And some of the the cruelty that you see in nature, why? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. And so for an awful lot of people, they'll go, oh, that's it. I can't believe in God. Except you have to stop and you have to think. Tim Keller says this. Tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise. Namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. And there is a big problem that the Bible will come to over and over again when it asks us, who do we think we are that we can sit in judgment upon the whole world? Just because we don't see the point of something, does that mean that there is not a point? Can you imagine a child having an argument with their parent? You will go to your bed right now. And they're four years old. Why? Why should I have to go to my bed right now? Well, because you need to sleep. Why? Why? You and mom get to stay up. Why can't I stay up? I don't see the point. And the child honestly does not see the point. Does that mean that there's not a point? Of course not. Well, when we are talking about suffering in the world... We need to be very careful because we're not sitting overlooking the world and saying, well, God, I am going to believe in you if you can justify your actions to me. Because we don't know. And God does know. Sometimes there are people who will say, I can't believe in God. And what they're doing is they're saying, I am God. I know enough to determine whether something is right and whether something is wrong and whether the God of the Bible is there or not. And that is the ultimate, actually, in blind faith. So, that is, I think, I've set that up as the kind of opposite of the Christian view. But if the Christian view is, as we read in Genesis 1, that the world was created good, that God is good, then how is there evil within 
that created world? Did God create a perfect world and basically get it wrong? Who made the devil? Well, I, uh, if you go through Genesis, you read Isaiah, you read Revelation and so on, I think uh, the Bible has a very neat answer. St. Augustine summarized it in this way. God created all things. Well, this is the, the attack, first of all. God created all things. The devil is created. We know that the devil is created. For uh, example, you read in Isaiah or you read in Ezekiel that the devil is a fallen angel. You read in Ephesians 3.9 that God created all things. That the only uncreated being is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything else is created, and that includes the devil. So it seems obvious that the devil is evil, therefore God must have created evil. Except the answer that Augustine gives is very straightforward, and it's a biblical answer. The devil was created good. Isaiah uh, 14. Let me just read a couple of the verses from there. There's uh, Isaiah 14 and verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. That's the name Lucifer. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Augustine argued that the devil is an angel. God didn't create devils, he created angels. But that's he also, that the devil went wrong. Now, how could the devil go wrong? He argued that evil is not a created thing. Evil is the absence of good. God permitted choice. And God permits evil ultimately for good. Now, when you stop and you think about it, it makes a great deal of sense. Can you imagine... Being in a situation where you are told you have a choice, and then that's it. You're given one thing. Henry Ford is reputed to have said, when he did the Model T Ford, you can have any color that you want as long as it's black. Well, obviously, that's not a choice. If we are to be able to choose between good and evil, between dark and light and so on, then evil has to be there. There there has to be that choice. Is it possible to love if there is no concept of hate? And so the argument is, again quoting from Augustine, in the universe, even that which is called evil, when it is regulated and put in its own place, only enhances our admiration of the good. For we enjoy and value the good more when we compare it with the evil. For the almighty God, who has even the heathen acknowledged, has supreme power over all things, being himself supremely good, would never permit the existence of anything evil among his works if he were not so omnipotent and good that he can bring good even out of evil. For he judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. Now here you have a view of God 
which, in my view, has, is, is, it, it is absolutely biblical, and it has not been surpassed. It is the idea that God is not taken by surprise with evil. God doesn't create the world and go, ah, oh, dash, made a mistake, or I got something wrong. But he permitted evil in order out of that evil to come a greater good. Now, I want to look at a a moment about how the the Bible deals with that evil, but even allow that as a possibility. Here's another way that I would simply explain it. If you or I were God, or if if I was God and was able to say to you, you know, I could create a world in which you never experienced any pain, any sorrow, any suffering, any hunger, any illness, would you want that? You'd say yes. I'd say, okay, I'll create you as a chair. Because right now, the chair that you are sitting on is not going, oh, I just wish someone else was sitting on me because they're way too heavy. The chair feels no pain. The chair is not there thinking, oh, just, I wish I could be somewhere else. Or I wish I could be a couch. Or, or something along those lines because it fits in with its nature. It doesn't think. It doesn't feel like that. How do you think we could experience joy? How do you think we could experience salvation if we didn't know what sorrow was and if we didn't know what sin was? Now that creates, I know that that creates other problems, but that is a key part of the biblical narrative. The tree of knowledge and good and evil, it's not that God creates a world in which you eat a certain piece of fruit and it gives you all this knowledge. It was a test for humanity, for humanity to make a choice. Were we going to choose to trust God or were we going to choose to listen to the devil? And humanity in Adam and Eve chose to listen to the devil and the consequences of that have been with us ever since. Now, uh, God does bring good out of evil, and we'll see uh, how that works in a moment and what the biblical answer to evil is, because the Bible is not so concerned as to why evil exists. The the reason the first part of this has been so heavy in terms of philosophy is because it's it's the way that people think. The Bible is primarily concerned with how, how evil is dealt with. Evil does exist. The atheist says, well, not really. It doesn't. It's just the way we think. But the Christian, and actually every human being, knows within themselves that evil does exist. The question is not why, but what does God do about it? How can it be dealt with? Do we just have to live with it? And we'll see that that's not the case. For me, one of the key verses in the whole Bible in the question of evil is in Romans 8 and verse 28 and onwards. We read uh, the latter part of that this morning. But Romans 8, 28 says this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the Bible acknowledges that there is evil. The Bible says that evil is the absence of good. The Bible implies at least that God allowed evil in the world so that human beings could be free to choose. Um, Let me just go on a wee bit to the this is the, the idea here. Is evil necessary? Could God have created a world where there was no evil? Well, not if he wanted us to love him freely. 
God created human beings to be free moral agents responsible for their own actions with this earthly life being our one and only probationary period in which their eternal fate is determined by the response to God's will during earthly life. The world's created good with the potential for evil with this in mind. It's not that it had to be. The environment is created to allow human beings to be free moral agents, provide us with what we need, and enable us to learn what we need to learn. We are not what's called determinists. There are some people who say, well, you just can't help it. And in fact, increasingly in our culture, there are more and more people who are saying, well, it's just the way that you're born, and it's just your genes, and that's it. And is that really much of an excuse? When people say, well, I'm genetically predisposed to kill people, or to rape, or to cause harm. And it's very important in biblical teaching and the understanding of what humanity is, that we are morally responsible for what we do. God doesn't judge animals. Um, I mentioned this morning about fishing and salmon fishing and so on. The River Broro, the film that uh, I mentioned this morning, which is about... One of the big problems there was that seals would come and eat one of the fish, eat the salmon as they were going up to the river. Now, they wouldn't even eat them. They would take a bite. These cute, cuddly seals that everyone loves, they would just take one bite out of the salmon, and the salmon would die a slow and lingering death. Are the seals to be held morally culpable? Should they be taken and put in some kind of court? Obviously not. They are behaving according to their instinct and their nature. But human beings, we don't have that excuse. We have a nature, we have an instinct, but we have a moral responsibility as well. And that is one of the great arguments in terms of um, uh, understanding why God allowed the devil to come and to tempt, why that choice was allowed in the first place. In all of that, we just simply say, who, sorry for the Dundonian, who kens, who knows? Who knows about everything? It's only God, ultimately, who does know. God is omniscient. He knows everything. We do not know everything. We can ask, but we cannot claim absolute knowledge. And that, for me personally, has been a hugely important thing to try and understand. There are some things I understand why some people suffer. And sometimes you can see that there's a purpose in their suffering. But sometimes you don't see that. You don't know. And you are forced to go back and to say, Lord, I don't know, but you do. Now, we've been going through Job, and this was God's answer to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Do you know it? Because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Whose mind knows more about the consequences of all actions? Ours or God's? Whose mind is in a better position to know what will happen if this action is permitted? Whose mind has the ability to see the bigger picture? And who alone is in the position to know how much suffering is permissible to bring about the ultimate good for humanity? 
Only the infinite, eternal, omniscient creator, the God of the Bible. Now, you do it at that level, and whilst I think intellectually that makes a whole lot of sense and it's very satisfying, it's no use if you've got cancer. And it's no use if you have to face up to horrendous suffering. So, what has God done? How do we answer people? How do we, how do we avoid being Job's comforters? How do we help people? I uh, became a minister 27 years ago. And in my first year, I went to this wee house to do a Bible study with a group of people who were there. And a woman who was there said to me, why does God allow suffering? And I gave a brilliant answer. I'm telling you, it was fantastic. Best answer I could have ever given. And I, I knew it was brilliant, and I thought I was brilliant. And don't you laugh. <laughs> don't say, my daughter's saying, you know, you haven't changed. <laughs> but I did. I thought, that, that was, knocked that one dead. And the Bible study finished, and the lady got up and went to the kitchen to make tea and coffee and scones for everyone. And somebody leaned over and said, do you know who that was? I said, no. I said, that's, I think his name was Adam's um, mum. And I just went bright red. Because Adam was a famous child in the north of Scotland. The BBC had made a documentary about him. He'd been born healthy, and as a baby, he'd had an injection, and he became severely mentally and physically handicapped. And his mother had fought for him, and she had to give up her job, and she uh, looked after him, and so on. And I thought, you idiot. So I went through to the kitchen, and I said, look, I'm really, really sorry. I didn't know who you were, and I was just being a smart aleck and just giving you a good philosophical answer. I said, you've gone through so much. And she just looked at me, and she didn't contradict me, and she said, that's all right, son. You'll learn. And she was right. She was right. You, can't, you don't go and give people great big philosophical answers. Uh, the reason you're lying here dying just now is, well, let me tell you, that's the wider context, the wider set. God never came to Job and said, well, Job, I'm just going to come and give you a hug. Or, Job, I'm going to come and tell you what's exactly had happened here. I'm going to tell you about the devil. I'm going to tell you about right and wrong. That's not what happened. In uh, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, the character Ivan keeps a record of all the bad things that are happening in the world so that he has a reason for not believing in God. An atheist will reason that humans are supposed to be the objects of God's love, yet we suffer. Thus God either does not love or does not have the power to stop the suffering. The observer immediately sees the problem with that. Sometimes some suffering allows for a greater good. I hate needles. I absolutely loathe needles. Why would anyone want to stick a needle in somebody? But what if that needle alleviates a greater pain? And if someone said, well, it would be fantastic if I didn't feel any pain. No, it wouldn't actually. It would be horrible. Because if you didn't feel any pain, and if you had that condition, then when you put your hand in a fire, you wouldn't feel that it was burning. So the, 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 the whole idea of pain itself is not necessarily 
that disastrous thing. It's what is done. It's what is done. And the verse that is up there tells us God's way of dealing. Now, there are numerous verses. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, that's Jesus, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Or you could take Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, or Colossians 2, 19, which talks about everything being for Jesus and the cross of Jesus defeating the principalities and powers. So what the Bible says is that yes, there's good and yes, there's evil. And in order to be human and in order to choose and in order to feel and in order to love, you are going to experience these things. But what has God done? And the answer is that God is love. And instead of leaving us humanity to its own choice, he sent his son to suffer for our sin so that we could choose to come back to him. Now, within that context, God is creating or working towards a new creation where in heaven, having gone through that choice, we will no longer experience any pain. Their tears are gone. The sin is gone. We, we said, uh, I think it was Annabelle, we were talking after lunch today and Annabelle said, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be without sin. No, we can't imagine what it would be like to be without sin. But it will be wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And it will be wonderful because we've lived in a sinful world. If God made us robots with no responsibility, we wouldn't be able to experience that love and we wouldn't be able to know that depth. So I would summarize in this way in terms of how we respond as both the unbeliever and the believer. The unbeliever says there's probably no God, so enjoy yourself. That was the atheist slogan. There's ultimately no good and evil and there's probably no God, so just go out and enjoy yourself. But... That is incredibly shallow, incredibly self-centered, incredibly destructive, and ultimately incredibly evil. It's not exactly very cheering to somebody. You go in and talk to a mother who's just lost her child and say, you know, there's probably no God, so go out and enjoy yourself. How does that help her? How does that deal with her problem? It doesn't. Now, the more consistent atheist will say... Well, just suck it up. That's the way the universe is. There's nothing you can do about it. Why do you think people like Jean-Paul Sartre and others actually couldn't follow the consequences of their own philosophy because it would mean suicide? It's a hopeless, godless way of thinking. For the believer, do not fall into the trap of thinking Because I believe in Jesus Christ, I have this divine anesthetic, I will never ever feel pain. Actually, because you are a believer, you may feel pain even more. You may be more acutely aware of pain. You may be more sensitive to all the wrongs that are in the world. Again, Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment says this, Pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great men must, I think, 
have great sadness. And I think people who walk close to Christ, Christians who walk close to Christ, will feel and experience sorrow and evil, sometimes in a depth that nobody has any idea about. That's what I think Paul is talking about when he says we, we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What did Jesus go through on the cross? He carried the sins of the world. He carried the evil of the world. Look at the most horrendous human evil and then recognize that Jesus went through that, magnified many, many times. And sometimes we, as his people, go through that. Not to the same extent, obviously. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't cope with it. But it's, it is the case. We, every year there is sorrow. David Randall, of, who's the kind of interim pastor of Grace Church, his son, Colin died totally unexpectedly at the end of last year. And some people would think, oh, David's got great faith. He'd be okay. He said, I didn't know it was possible to feel such pain. And that's a Christian speaking. Why? Because it's painful. Because it's evil. Because death is an enemy. Because we cannot be blasé about it. Because it should cause us to weep and, and to cry out, God, how long? And the, for the Christian says, yes, but God knows and God is dealing with evil and God is destroying evil. And the last enemy is death and it's beaten. The unbeliever ultimately has to say, I just live for Today, that's all there is. Do the best that I can. Going to die. That's it. The world, the universe. Ultimately, who knows and who cares? The Christian says, no, this is God's world. When Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, very interesting, a, a sermon I heard, again, I think it was from Tim Keller, who gets quoted occasionally here. Um, and I think it was from him. It talks about Jesus wept. But the word that's used is for his tears. Is that he was angry. He was raging at death. Raging at death. And I, I, I love that idea. That God's not saying, oh, well, what can I do? This is what he did. He came into this world... And he's dealt with evil in Christ. One of the reasons I am a Christian, and I know for some people this seems totally bizarre, it's the very opposite of what they would expect you to say, is precisely because of evil, because I know nothing that deals with evil or explains evil like the Bible. I try and watch Schindler's List every year to remind myself of why I'm in the ministry to fight evil. Because that is what God has done. And, I, and I'll leave you with one thing that's not, 
Um, I would leave you with Romans 8. In fact, I, would, I had so much difficulty with this in terms of the Bible because you go through the whole Bible and it's dealing with this big narrative that I'm trying to give you. The Bible is God's answer to evil, or better still, to say Jesus is God's answer to evil and the Bible is God's word that tells us that. But I was, I'm going to leave you something that um, a Christian uh, wrote, Tolkien, which I think he grasped wonderfully how evil was dealt with. In Lord of the Rings, where Sam asks Gandalf, when he's so amazed to see Gandalf alive, you were dead, you were dead, but you're alive. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And I think that's the extraordinary teaching of Scripture, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And that the most extraordinary pain and sorrow that you feel as a believer, one day you will know that even that worked for your good. You might believe it just now. You might hope for it just now. You might stumble on in darkness and pain just now saying, I I can't see how, but I'm going to accept what God says. But one day you will look and you will see that the deep cut that was made in your life and in your heart, God brought good out of it. We are not dualists. We do not believe that there's good and there's evil, a good God and a bad God, and that the two fight one another and sometimes one wins and the other doesn't. We believe that God is sovereign and in control of everything. And as the quote from Augustine said, he is so in control that even what is evil, and it is evil, it's not fake evil, it's not pretend evil, even what is evil, he can turn ultimately for good for his people and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it's, a, it's such a difficult subject for us. Sometimes we prefer not to be able to think. Sometimes we prefer not to be able to feel. And yet we know that that's not a preferable state. We thank you that you have made us in your image. And we thank you that you know and are aware of our pain and our suffering. And we thank you that you have given the answer to evil, that Jesus came to defeat the devil, to destroy the last enemy, death, and to create a new heavens and a new earth wherein would dwell righteousness and beauty and holiness and where ugliness and death and tears and sorrow would be taken away. Lord, help us as we pass through this valley of tears to know that beauty and to know your joy and enable us to live for the good. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 
for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.